Natasha Crane is a national speaker, author of four books. She's a blogger and a podcaster who is passionate about equipping Christians to think more clearly about holding on to a biblical view of the world in the middle of an increasingly challenging secular culture. Uh, Natasha, so great to have you here in person with us today. Well, thank you so much for having me. It's great to be here. Well, I love the subject of apologetics. And for those who uh, aren't familiar with the term, it almost, uh, you might think it's being an expert in apologizing. That's not true. It's, it's actually talking about uh, giving reasons why you believe what you believe and defending those beliefs. Uh, as a young Christian, I had so many questions, I had to find the answers before I believed. Why did you get involved in apologetics? Well, I learned about it sort of by accident. Uh, back in 2011, I decided that I was going to start a Christian parenting blog. And I had been a lifelong Christian. I grew up in a Christian family, was in the church. But when I started my blog, it was very much just about how can we raise these very small children that I had at the time. I had three that were three and under. How mm. can we raise them to know and love the Lord? So I started to write these blog posts talking about the little things we were doing. And as people began to read it and share it with their friends, it started attracting skeptics to my website. Mm. And it really did take me by surprise because even though I was a lifelong Christian, I had never really heard these kinds of objections. They were saying there was no evidence for God's existence, that the Bible's filled with errors and contradictions, science has disproved God, all these kinds of claims that you hear. And I thought, I have no idea how to answer these. My kids are growing up in such a different world than the one in which I grew up. And so that really sent me looking for answers and I discovered apologetics, which is how you make a case for and defend the truth of Christianity. So the more that I read, I read and read, went into this intense reading journey, I learned about these answers and then I turned around and I turned my blog into a place where I was helping to equip other Christian parents with that same understanding. I'm so glad that you did and as a parent of six kids, I know that the questions just aren't, they come nonstop. And I know your kids are now uh, entering the teenage years. And uh, uh, just FYI, the questions get harder. <laughs> they just keep coming. And you know that because you're talking to parents uh, on the internet all over the world. Uh, no doubt you've heard the statistics that there are kids uh, that are increasingly not only just doubting their faith and having questions, but walking away from the faith that their parents taught them. Why do you think this is happening? Yeah, so research shows that somewhere between 60 and 90% of kids who grew up in Christian homes are walking away from their faith by their early 20s. Mm. So researchers who study this, it, there's no controversy of, you know, is this happening, is it not? It's just, to what degree? Is it more like 60% or is it more like 90%? And this has been confirmed by multiple studies over time. Sometimes parents just think, oh, that's just an alarmist statistic. But no, this has been really well documented. So of course the million dollar question is why does this happen? Because we want some answers so we can make right. it not happen. And many people have offered different explanations, but I would say in the very root of the problem is discipleship that we are not discipling our kids as Christian parents in the way that we are called to. Too many Christian parents think, well, if I just take my kids to church each week and if I take them to some youth groups and we do some devotionals at home, we kind of check these boxes off that my kids are gonna grow up and they're gonna be a Christian and they're gonna love the Lord. But that's not enough today. It, it's not supposed to be enough. We're supposed to be giving our kids a much deeper understanding of their faith. And when kids are growing up in a culture like this, that's increasingly hostile to Christians and Christianity, they're gonna need some really deep roots if they're going to stand firm. People today aren't just saying, oh, Christianity, that's just false, that's a bunch of myths. They say that, but they also say Christianity is bad. 
it's harmful. We have harmful beliefs that hurt other people. So we have a lot that we have to be able to stand up to today, both emotionally, both intellectually. And this is something that parents overwhelmingly, in my experience, are not preparing their kids for. I think you're exactly right. And, and it's hard because many parents uh, say things like, well, um, I'm hanging on to my faith and my kids are gonna have to work that out uh, for their faith. But our kids are looking for people to give them answers. And if we don't give them answers, they're gonna look somewhere else. They're gonna say, hey Siri, is there a God? Uh, hey Alexa, um, um, is Christianity good or bad for the world? But God's given our kids to us. And so we need to be educated on these things and then teach them to our children. So here's some, here's some questions that I have for, for you with regard to our kids walking away from church. Some kids walk away from the faith because they feel that the church is not concerned about the things that they're concerned about. They wanna know, well, what about racial justice? Why doesn't the church talk about that? What about gender identity? Uh, what about the immigration problem? Why, why aren't we uh, dealing with the climate issues? Um, how do we talk to our kids about these things when our church doesn't talk about it and we don't know a particular Bible verse that uses those terms? Yeah, that's a great question. It's a really important question today. And I think it starts with just affirming that it is something that we should be concerned about. We as Christians love people and we are concerned about the issues that face them specifically because we are all image bearers of the great God. We all have this inherent value because God imbued us with this value and we are all equal and therefore Christians love people. So that's the starting point. Right. So we look around, we say we do care about these issues and we do need to be talking about them. But we have to be careful to distinguish a concern and a love from agreeing with the world on how to approach these questions. Mm. The secular culture will tell you, if you love someone, you will love them in this particular way. Mm. It's not just love them in some right. way, it's you must agree with what it means to love according to man's standards. So they will say something like, if you're really a Christian, then you will actually affirm that person's sin and celebrate it or defend their sin. That's right, that's the secular view of love. It is, you are going to affirm whatever a person wants for themselves. You're going to come along with them on their journey. You're gonna give them the high five. You're gonna say, yes, everything that's right for you is right for you. But a Christian view of love is not that. We want for others what God wants for them whether or not they want that for themselves. Right. That's a huge distinction that kids need to understand when addressing all of these hot button kinds of issues. And do you think the Bible addresses these hot button issues? Yes, absolutely. The Bible might not come right out and say, okay, here's how you're going to handle immigration issues in 2022. No, but when we understand the Bible first and we have that biblical worldview, we need to learn how to think from a biblical perspective. And that's something that doesn't just happen by memorizing the Bible verses on Sunday. Mm -hmm. At Sunday school, kids have to be trained to think in these ways. They have to be trained how to take what they understand from the Bible, from God's eternal truths, and to think in light of that. So these are things we have have to help them with because if we don't, the world will train them on how to think about them. And that's not going to be from a godly perspective. Oh, this is so great. Um, Natasha, what about uh, our kids saying things like, well, you know, what's true for you is not necessarily true for me. And it's definitely not true for my friend who just had this conversation with me and they told me what their truth is. Um, how do we raise our kids to hold on to a faith that says, no, 
there is the truth and that's what God says the truth is. Well, I think that's why apologetics is so important. And of course, I'm biased. I'm an apologist and I love apologetics, but I love it because it's so important. We have to have a good understanding of why there's good reason to believe that Christianity is true. So these big worldview questions that all of us, every single human has to answer in terms of does God exist? And if he exists, has he revealed himself? Is the Bible God's word? Well, who are we as humans? All of these questions have true or false kinds of answers. God either exists or he doesn't exist. It doesn't make sense when you put it into these specific terms to say, well, it's my truth that he exists. And if it's your truth that he doesn't exist, well, that's okay. We wouldn't talk about it in that way. So giving kids a concrete example with a question like that so they can see, this is a true or false kind of thing. It's a category error to say, oh, well, that can be true for me and not for you. When we're talking about worldview questions in particular. We're not talking about something that can be true for one person and not for the other. Right, like, we're talking like about is, true uh, or does false. chocolate taste good? Right. You might say no, I might say yes, but when we're talking about does God exist and is the Bible his word, that's either true or it's not. That's right. And I think giving kids those kinds of questions helps them to see, okay, oh. that, that makes more sense. Because sometimes these quotes that go out there in culture that plot, they're so popular and float around about, oh, it's my truth. We don't stop to talk about, well, what do you mean by my truth? What questions are you talking about? So we can make it much more tangible for our kids. We hear this term called deconstruction. Um, I'm hearing it more and more. Uh, what is that all about? And is it dangerous? So this is one of those words that if you asked 100 people what they mean, you're going to get 100 different kinds of answers. So I will say that as a caveat here. Sometimes a person simply means that they're taking apart the faith that they have right now so that they can make sure that their beliefs actually line up with the Bible. They want to strip away any assumptions or anything else that they might have learned over time and just make sure that what they believe lines up with reality. Okay, that's a good kind of deconstruction if that's all that someone means. And I've seen that used in some ways. However, the more popular use of the term deconstruction today means that someone is walking away from the historic Christian faith and any kind of presupposition that the Bible is God's word, and they're saying, I'm going to deconstruct all of the beliefs that I've held, and I'm going to reconstruct based on what I find to be helpful for me, mm. and what I think is going to be not harmful, but the most loving kinds of ideas to hold. So instead of looking at the Bible and saying, do my beliefs line up with the Bible, they're saying, I'm walking away from the Bible as any kind of sacred cow here, and I'm going to rebuild on the beliefs that mm. I find to be true. And just to be clear, I'm not saying that we should always just assume the Bible's true without looking for why there's good reason to believe it is. We absolutely should. But we also shouldn't start from the position of saying, well, I no longer feel the Bible is true. Therefore, I'm going to rebuild a faith of my own making and just come to these custom beliefs because I don't like what the Bible teaches. Those are very different things. When is it okay to question the Bible? When something doesn't make sense, do we need to just have faith that it's true or can we look into it and even doubt the Word of God? Yeah, it's totally fine to have questions. I think that we have to, as a church and as the body of Christ, we have to acknowledge that everyone has questions. This is a normal part of the human experience. So like I said, with respect to deconstruction, I'm not saying anyone needs to just assume the Bible is true and to just have faith without looking for what the good reasons would be to believe it's actually God's word. I'm not suggesting that at all. But it's unhealthy if we are asking the wrong questions coming into our doubts. It's unhealthy if we come into it saying, well, 
I don't like what it says here, so I'm going to look for what's helpful. And this is the most common question I see being asked today. People are looking for what is helpful or not helpful, but that's a very subjective kind of term. So an honest search for truth, if we have doubts, would be to look for answers to our questions that get us closer to truth. That's what's important when we're searching for more information on our doubts. If we're looking for answers that are just going to make us feel happier or more comfortable, then that's not a good place to be. Natasha, why doesn't God just make his existence undeniable? I mean, why doesn't he just show up in the sky and reveal himself to everyone? Or, or has he? Well, this is something actually that I heard very early on when I started blogging and atheists would come and say, you know what, I'll believe in your Christian God as soon as he shows up in the sky and does his skywriting thing. And I remember just thinking, you know, I'd like that too. <laughs> I totally relate to that desire for that kind of certainty where God is just revealing himself to you personally or showing up in your living room. I totally relate to that. However, we cannot choose the kind of evidence that God has given or not given to us in order to determine whether or not he exists and if Christianity is true. That's it's right. sort of like a detective, right? A detective doesn't get to say, well, here's the evidence that I want. And so let's make sure that we get that evidence the way that it is. Instead, a detective has to work with what he's been given. So in the same way, you have to look at what's actually in the universe and the way that the universe is, is made or the way that the universe appears mm, to mm. be, and you make inferences from that. You conclude, make conclusions based on the evidence. So we might love for God to be up in the sky writing in a specific way. However, it's our responsibility to, and if we're gonna be intellectually honest, to look at what there is and say, what's the best explanation for this? What best explains the reality that we see here? And as to why, why he doesn't make himself undeniable, well, I don't have the mind of God. However, he has given us overwhelming evidence for his existence from nature and from the Bible and through Jesus himself. So there are many pieces of evidence for those who want to look. Up next, we're gonna dive deep into some of the most pressing questions that our kids have about God and Christianity. Stay tuned. Welcome back to Takeaways. If you're just now tuning in, I'm joined by speaker, author, and apologist, Natasha Crane. Natasha, kids seem to come up with the hardest questions. Uh, they're, they're always thinking about these things. Uh, in your experience, what are the big questions that kids are asking today? Well, I think one of the biggest ones is when kids are very little, it starts right then where they, where they say, well, how do I know that God is even there? That's one of the big questions that mm. comes up right away that we always get asked, right? I think there are a lot of questions about science and the relationship between science and God as mm -hmm. kids get older and they start to learn about some of the scientific theories that are taught today and they wonder how does all this line up? And there is a lot of confusion about some of the, the topics that we've talked about with respect to what does it mean to love today and why are Christians not loving based on what other people are saying. Mm. And those are, those are all tough issues that we have to address. Okay, well, let's just take a, a few of them one by one. For instance, uh, uh, mom, can science prove or disprove that God is real? 
Yeah, so let's understand what science is. As a starting point, science is the systematic study of the natural world through experimentation and through observation. God, by definition, is supernatural. In other words, he is beyond nature. So if we just consider those two definitions, we can see that science is not the right kind of tool to investigate God. We can't put God in a test tube the way that we can evaluate weather systems, for example. So we can't look at it from that perspective. Science is not trying to prove or disprove God, and it, it can't do that. However, we can look at the findings of science and we can look at the world as it is and we can say, hey, what's the best explanation for what we see? What can yeah. we infer from these scientific findings? You know, we look at DNA, for example, and we look at the complexity mm. and the specificity of DNA, this blueprint for life. Well, is that best explained by naturalistic processes that just happened by chance over time? Yeah. Or is that best explained by a mind? That's a finding of science and it's not about proving your disproving God, but it can point us to God. In fact, we can do science in the first place because the universe is such an orderly place. It's the product of a mind. Great point. Uh, here's another one. Uh, how could a good God allow evil and suffering in the world? So that's a question that's been asked through the ages. This is not a new question. It's something people have always asked. And it's always surprising to me when people walk away from their faith and they say, I asked this question and there were no answers. People have talked about this for a long time. It is emotionally a very difficult question. Yeah. And ultimately, we can't look at any individual example of evil or suffering in the world and say, ah, okay, here's, how, here's why God allows that particular thing, or here's why this happened. We can't do that. However, we can look at the bigger picture and say, why would God allow any evil and suffering in the world? And to that, theologians will offer a lot of different answers. But one of the ones that I find most compelling and helpful is that God wanted to create humans with whom he could have a relationship. And that requires us to have free will so that we have the choice to make morally significant decisions. If he just created us as robots and we just kind of automatically do the right thing all the time, that's not genuine love. That's not genuine relationship with God. So if he's going to allow us to have a relationship with him, we have have to have this free will. But unfortunately, as time has shown over and over again, humans will make the wrong choice. They've, we've been given free will, but we will make bad choices. And that brings all kinds of evil and suffering into the world. But we can't forget the end of the story, that at the end of time, all things mm. will be made right. There will be no more suffering. Every tear will be wiped away when God makes all of those things right. Here's another good question. How can a loving God send people to hell? I think our gut instinct is to think, well, if God loves me, he doesn't want me to suffer. That's kind of the premise of both of these questions, right? That we assume that if God is love, he doesn't want anything bad to happen to us. And by bad, we mean things that we don't like to happen. But God is so much more than just love. God has all these other attributes. And one that we don't talk about enough, especially with our kids, is that God is just God is a just God. That means that he would not be fully loving and he would not be fully holy and just if he did not give consequences for our sins. Mm. And we can give kids examples just from our earthly understanding of saying, hey, if there were a judge locally and he was regularly letting murderers go free, people wouldn't be saying, hey, you are so loving. Thank you for doing that. Wow, what a loving guy. You would cry out for justice. He would say, this is injustice. Something needs to be done. There has to be consequences for those actions. Well, how much more so for a holy and just God? Mm. There has to be consequence 
for sin in order for God to be the perfectly just God that he is. And that's ultimately what hell is. But again, there's the good news. The good news is that Jesus died for our sins and took the punishment and the penalty himself out of his lovingness so that we mm. don't have to pay it. And that's an amazing good news to us. No one has to go to hell. Every single one of us has the opportunity to accept Jesus's forgiveness of sins because he has paid the penalty for us. This may not sound like an apologetic question, but uh, I think this is important. What did Jesus teach about loving others? That is one of the most important questions I think today, actually. And it does absolutely have relevance for apologetics because when people misunderstand how the Bible defines love, then they're going to misunderstand the nature of Christianity being true. So here's the thing. When Jesus is asked by a Pharisee, what is the greatest commandment? He says, the greatest commandment, the first and greatest commandment is to love the Lord your God with all of your heart, your soul, and your mind. And the second commandment is to love others. There's a reason for this hierarchy. You can't know what it means to love other people until you first know what it means to love mm. God. Our love for God must shape how we define our love for others. And so sometimes today, and we talked a little bit about this earlier, but sometimes today secular culture says, hey, you're not loving, but they're talking about that from their own definition of the word love. They're looking at their own standards of, of affirmation and just saying, you're fine the way that you are, whatever you wanna think, whatever you wanna do, you're fine as long as you're not hurting someone else. That is a secular standard of love. So as Christians, we have to understand what Jesus said about loving others, because if we don't, we're going to get really wrapped into this view, an equivocation really on the word love. People mean very different things when they talk about the word love. So we have to help our kids get clear on that and to know that when someone says love, it doesn't necessarily mean the same thing that God would mean if we were talking about love in that context. Natasha, what did Jesus teach about judging others? That's another big one today. How many times do we hear, well, don't judge me, right? Don't, right. Judging is the ultimate sin in today's culture. And uh, even Christians get this wrong because Christians go straight to Matthew 7, 1 and they sort of razor cut it out where it says, do not judge or you too will be judged. These are Jesus's words. But you always have to read in the context of the passage. And if you keep reading that passage, you'll see that that was a, a prelude to a passage on not judging hypocritically. Right. Jesus says to take the law out of your own eye so that you can see clearly to help your neighbor, to judge correctly, to judge with right judgment. He talks about that also in John 7, 24, that we are not to judge by mere appearances, but to judge correctly. So yes, we are to judge. We are supposed to help our neighbor, but we shouldn't be doing that hypocritically. When by judging, we mean discerning between what's right and wrong, between truth and error, that is judgment that Christians are supposed to make. What we're not supposed to do is to judge when by that we mean condemn. That's God's, that's God's prerogative. God, in the end, he is the one that gives the final sentence. We are not to judge someone's final destination or condemn their lives. We don't make that final sentence, but we are to judge right and wrong 100%. Wow, I've got 10 more questions, but uh, we've, we've run out of time. Um, Natasha, thank you. Thank you for giving us uh, tools to help lead our children into a deeper and more grounded faith in Jesus. Hi, I'm Kirk Cameron. Thanks for listening to this episode of Takeaways. If you love the conversations that we're having, please follow or subscribe to this podcast to never miss any of this great content. And please consider leaving a positive rating and a review to help others like you discover this show.